0: Let's pray. Father, uh, we are grateful for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus and for uh, the truth for those who trust in Christ's finished work and are clothed in his righteousness. Uh, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Thank you that. Judy has gone to her reward, and that Jean has as well. And I pray for comfort for both households as uh, there is mourning, but not without hope for those of us who know you. And I thank you for the privilege to uh, share with these who are here today about your church. Mm -hmm. Thank you for um, the fact that we who grieve are not as those who are without hope for there is coming a great and glorious day when the dead in Christ shall rise. Christ in the last trumpet will sound, And those who have trusted in you shall be raised to life everlasting. This is not the end of Judy's story or Nancy's or any other believer who has been gathered to her people. We pray you'll help us as we look at your great gospel today as we continue to press in discover OGC to Find our joy in that glorious hope in Jesus name we pray. Amen All right, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself
1: um, So I'm actually sort of from here I've lived here since I was like 10 or so. I went to the gene school. Okay down the road. I'm
0: what part of the town there. do you guys live in?
1: So we live uh, off Saint-Maron, Uh Complex.
0: And Castleberry? Yeah, I mean Castleberry, yeah. okay.
1: Right across from the Walmart. Okay. Um, but we, uh, where are you from? I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Okay. But so we both graduated from Covenant College on the Mountain, Georgia. Sure.
0: Never been there, but obviously well known yeah. institution. Yeah. Great. We got married
1: May 17th.
0: So oh, this year? Well, congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> ah, that's terrific. How did you guys hear about our land of grace?
1: Uh, I. We, so we're members of a Reformed Baptist Church up
0: uh, on and so. Aha, uh-huh, it's kind of a church. far commute now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. a little bit. <laughs> okay, all right, you guys have been members of a Reformed Baptist Church in New, York. in New York. What part of New York again? Long Island. Long Island, long Island. okay. So that's also a long way to commute, <laughs> okay. All right, how did you guys hear about our land of grace? Uh,
1: so it was just through that, uh, our pastor kind of looked up Reformed Baptist Church Ah, so, okay. So, and then I knew, I think, two families that
0: came here. Okay. Because so. you are from here. Yeah. So recently. Great. Well, awfully nice to meet you both. Yeah. Good to have you here. And Andre and Asana, I know we have met. Tell us a little of your story. Um,
2: well, uh, I live here in Maitland. Okay. So Uh huh. And I was a member of that church. Then I was a uh, part of a church plant, uh, like an ethnic church, a Russian-speaking church in the um, by area. Uh huh. And um, we've been wanting to come here to this church for a long time. Uh-huh. Yeah, but, uh huh. But just other ministry opportunity, people were asking for our help. Well. Sure. Sure. And so it's been uh, the first time we heard about you. You was two two years ago. And
0: how was that? What they got, how did you become aware of Orlando Grace?
2: We well, were just looking for churches, passing by. We lived in the area. Oh, okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Marvelous. Well, good to have you here. We're, uh, this is, <laughs> I hadn't even written up the word, session five. Um, and I'm, I'm more than delighted to have um, anyone here at any point, especially because we, uh, have all of these previous sessions online at our website under the sermon chat. So uh, some of you may have already been listening to them, but um, that's a way you can get caught up if you want to. But I'm I'm delighted to have you here. We have been looking at our uh, some of our core values, the why behind our ministry and. Most of our journey in Discovered OGC is just about those along with our mission and our vision. So far, we've looked at passion for God, the fact that God cares about our emotional lives as well as our mental ones, and that a great delight in God, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, matters to the Lord, that he is more glorified by our passion for him our delight in him, though it looks different ways for different people, temperaments, personalities, stories, etc., but that there is a great place for praise and delight in the glory of God, and he is honored when we are so enamored with him uh, more than anything else, of course, is the, is the idea. Let me talk about intercessory prayer. without John 15.5. Apart from me, Jesus says you can do nothing. The importance of uh, our, John 15 calls it abiding in him through the word and prayer. It was so encouraging. I'm normally here at 8 on Sunday mornings given the loss. This morning I came back, took a nap after, and uh, you know, we finished with hospice and um, normally at 8.30, their prayer team meets, and I lead that prayer team, and we pray for 45 minutes for this hour and the one to come. And I begged off on that and asked Pastor Mike to lead it, but when I ran into one of our prayer team members in the restroom, he said, we got you covered. <laughs> and I knew exactly what he meant. We have prayed for you, your ministry today. I said, please, I'm I'm, I'm weary, and I could use, uh, I, you always need that coverage, of course, but There are times where you feel your weakness more than others, and is a very important part of what we do as a local church. Always can improve, but I mean, we've spent the last couple of weeks, and we'll finish today (coughs) looking at Reformed theology in a very uh, kind of overview kind of way. There's so much that can be said about this area. If, If passion for God was a consideration of the emotional part of our lives. The, you know, Jesus said, uh, "Those who worship worship in spirit and truth." The spirit part is that part of our emotions, or as Jonathan Edwards called it, our affections for God. Truth is part of the the mind, the doctrine, the the way we understand what the Bible teaches. Um, part of our journey. So, we've been this, this uh, you know, as you say, you've been part of a Reformed Baptist Church in uh, uh, Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. You've been part of a Reformed Baptist Church in Long Island. Um, not everybody is familiar with that kind of a label, but the key part is, uh, and we'll talk about the Baptist part today too, Lord willing, but we've been talking about what does it mean, whether you're a Presbyterian, um, kind of flavor, or Baptist kind of flavor, what, what does this word reformed mean? And I'm gonna just briefly review as we pick up with this conversation. And if you wanna turn in your notebooks to page 67 under tattoo, two, we'll all be in the same place. Page sixty-seven of tattoo. <clears throat> remember, we just as Orlando Ritz does not want to be what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobs and ignoring great music of the past. So we'll sing hymns from previous centuries as well as new songs, we don't want to be, nor can we afford to be chronological snobs doctrinally of how God has used great scholars and saints and theologians from the past, particularly out of conflicts in church history, to hammer out on the anvil of crisis. What is sound doctrine? What does the Bible really teach on major themes like the deity of Christ, the sovereignty of God, Salvation of sinners. So um, we pick up this word reform, particularly from the Protestant Reformation. We should back to 1517, where Luther hammered those 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. If, if if you're if you're not Roman Catholic like those who are engaged at St. Mary Magdalene across the street, and you are putting your hope in Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel, then you are this word, right? You're Protestant. But you and I could, and I've done this from time to time, I could ask you to name some Protestant denominations, and we could be there all day. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of labels that that if you're not Roman Catholic, come under, and we've named two already Baptist and And then under that, there's a a variety of little tributaries that we can go down, and uh, brethren, and Methodists, and so on, and so forth, right? They're all Protestant. They're all, in some way, standing on the shoulders of the reformers who sought to recapture the gospel from Rome, uh, both in the precursors to the Reformation and the Reformation itself. So we talked about two different paradigms, that came out of the Reformation, the five solas, like sola scriptura, the Bible alone is the authority by which you judge the, st- the truth or the falsehood of any doctrine. And sola fide, scriptura, fide, the chief principle sometimes called salvation by faith in Christ alone. And then we, we've been talking about at length the other rubric to come out of the Protestant Reformation about a century later in the Synod of George uh, called the Doctrines of Grace, often uh, remembered through this handy acronym, TULIP. Quick review. Chiefs before? Tull little which we tweaked a bit, calling it radical depravity, the basic truth being here, the human condition is a desperate one. Outside of Christ, left in our sins, we're dead, we're slaves, we're enemies of God, and blind. Those four word pictures, you might recall. And so, I have now, for the third, you might think it would have happened more often, but for the third time as a Christian, a pastor, and a family member, I have, I have been at the bedside uh, when someone's passed. And dead is really dead. It is remarkable when somebody breathes their last and the shell is there. It is incapable of anything. It is, dead is dead. And so to if, if we really get the seriousness of that and that there is nothing that we can do, salvation then becomes entirely of grace. Well, what does that look like? It begins with the U, which stands for what? Do I remember? Un- Unconditional, Unconditional election. There we go. Unconditional election. This is the father's role in in salvation. before the foundation of the world, God is great for knowing love, and in the decree of predestination elect, chooses, to salvation, a number which no man can number from every tribe, time, nation, and people. group And then the son's role, and I realize I'm blowing through this very fast, but will never get done if I don't, right <laughs> And there's more places to go. Um, the son's role then becomes, in how he saves sinners, the L standing for, anybody remember this one? No, no, no. Limited no. atonement. Limited atonement which we treat, we treat as definite atonement or particular redemption is that everyone that the Father has gifted the Son before the foundation of the world in the decree of predestination, choosing unto eternal life, the Son joyfully came, who for the joy that before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand, having finished the work God had given him to do, and purchased, unfailingly purchased every elect person. They shall not fail to be saved. And at the proper time in our journey, the role of the spirit is to do what? Irresistible grace. grace, which we treat as effective or efficacious grace we talked about the call whom he justified these he also called but that appropriate time the Lord comes and says like he did the Lazarus at that tomb that day in John chapter 11 come forth the power of the gospel is preached it comes to our hearts we repent and believe because the Lord calls us out of the domain of darkness translates into into, uh, us into the kingdom of his beloved son so uh, where we left off last week with that introduction is we're going to come full circle because this is assuming condition and now we come back to those whom the father has chosen the son has died for and the spirit of god has called and made his own what are these saints then assured of? The P stands for perseverance of the saints. You all with me? It's an awful lot, especially those of you who are just here today. Thank you for your patience. All right, persevering in grace, sometimes referred to as eternal security. God's regeneration and justification in a man's heart is a permanent act. All those who have been elected to believe will persevere. There's your blank. If you need a pen, there should be one over. If you want to fill in the blank, that's up to you. They will persevere. What page are we on? Page 67. Oh, okay. Midway. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, so believe will persevere in their trust of God and in their new life of obedience toward God. God promises to place his seal on the elect and to guard, keep, and protect them for all eternity. This reality is so certain that Paul speaks of our future glorification, and we talked about this last week in the past tense in Romans 8.30. Reichen, perseverance is implied in each of the other doctrines. The TULIP, particularly the ULI, have been studied and is a logical, consequence of salvation being the work of an eternally loving and utterly immutable that is unchanging God. This is really good news. As I sat by the bedside of my dying mother-in-law the last three days and watched her nearly breathe her last, we were all asleep when she finally took that last breath But came in a minute after she had done that. She Got there fully continuing to trust in Jesus' blood and righteousness because the Lord said, I will see you home to that point. And there is no need to be lacking in assurance of salvation when the hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Four key verses in this regard. May I have a reader for Philippians 1 6?
3: And I am sure of this. day of
0: Jesus Christ. Isn't that one of the great promises of the scripture? At whatever point the work began, and maybe you know the time and day, maybe you don't, that doesn't matter. The Lord does. But he who began it promises to finish it. So, number one, God finishes what he starts. Right? God finishes what he starts. Top of Well, now, bottom of page 67, each of these verses precedes the appropriate blank. Can I have a reader for John 10, 27 to 30?
2: My sheep hear my voice, and I know
3: them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one.
0: Wow, what a a powerful word, picture, all right? How are we secure? So much so that the enemy will not clutch us out of whose hand? First, listen here. Actually, before we talk about the Father's hand, there's another hand. hand. Son's hand. Think about this. If you're in Christ, You are in the palm of this word picture, the Son's hand, and you are in the palm of the Father's hand. And Jesus says, I am the Father of one, a dramatic statement of his deity. You're that secure, if you will. Our security is double-handed, top of page 68. Let let anyone try to wrench you from that clutching grip. It's not going to happen. What a great promise of, of, the, of the gospel in Jesus and his ministry in the Good Shepherd Discourse in John 10. All right, Romans 8, 35 to 39. A little longer passage, but can I have a reader there, please?
3: Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us
0: no I'm sorry please
3: I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from
0: the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sorry to uh, overrun your reading there. <laughs> Nothing, not any, or all of these 17 obstacles can separate us. There's your blank. Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then finally, 1 Peter 5, 10. Can we read that first, please?
3: And after you have suffered a little while, and the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish
0: you. Here Peter conveys a promise of certain future reward. A promise. certain future glory, not simply a wish. Now, this doctrine does not mean that those who merely profess Christ without actually being born again are secure. This accounts for biblical warnings, which we have, like the book of Hebrews, biblical warnings to make calling and election sure when professing believers fall away from the faith. This indicates that they had not actually been born again in the first place. May I have someone read the next two verses for us, please? Uh,
1: Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that
0: they are all, are, not I remember the first church I was a part of, um, there was a couple that Nancy and I uh, became close friends with. And um, we did all sorts of things together. And <clears throat> we lost track of one another. And then all of a sudden, you know, social media these days is, is, is a mixed blessing. Uh, <laughs> To say the least. But one of those is that that is a positive, or can be, is that you can reconnect with people that you haven't seen or known or or had any kind of fellowship or association with in a long time. Sure, out of the blue, one day this man contacted me. I thought, wow, really good to hear from you. How are you doing? And and, and how are you and your wife? And well, we've gotten divorced. And, well, well, how are you doing with the Lord? I said, oh, I don't have any of that anymore in my life. In fact, I've written, a, I forget how many page papers he said, of why it's all not true. I was like, flabbergasted me. Uh, because, I, I, you know, every indication is that there was a reality there, but he had apostatized unapologetically and had become an advocate for uh, what he considered the falsehood of the Christian faith. What? How do we explain that? You now, here's 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 help in First John. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Here's why there are these admonitions and warnings in the Scripture. Make your calling and election more sure. Not that you're earning any merit, but as James says, "Faith without works is dead. Faith is what justifies. Works are what give evidence to the reality of that faith, and we're constantly pressing into those realities, albeit imperfectly." Scriptural support for perseverance of the saints. You can read those um, on your own. There, in addition to the Let's finish with Jude one one and twenty four at the bottom of page 69. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now watch what happens in the doxology at the end of that one little New Testament chapter postcard, if I could put it that way, the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you, from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. In Christ, you are a kept saint, and he is more than able to keep you from ultimately stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence with glory and great joy. Mm -hmm. Conclusion, page 70. While these doctrines can be offensive, They can be offensive to man's pride and his desire to be the captain of his destiny. They offer great hope and joy to those who have realized their utter inability to earn and sustain God's favor. Here is the conclusion of the matter. God in his mercy saves sinners. Jonah two 9. Let's read it together. Jonah 2, nine but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. B.B. Warfield, speaking of the Calvinist, a nickname for reformed who's been captivated by the sovereignty of God's grace. Someone like that has caught sight of the ineffable vision and he will not let it, he will not let it fade for a moment from his eyes god in nature god in history god in grace everywhere he sees god in his mighty stepping everywhere he feels the working of his mighty arm the throbbing of his mighty heart i, re- I remember on um, one of these and i've taught so many of these uh two times a year welcome class as a It was just after the building had opened. And since that time, we'll have more people, like like Andre and Oksana, who see the building and come in, but aren't altogether acquainted with what we teach and preach and what our unique DNA is. And they'll hear this. I remember one woman coming to me after this and says, this is not the god I grew up with. It was just, it wasn't so much offensive as it was Unfamiliar and unknown. And so I put her with another woman in the church, and they studied, I mentioned this book last week, the most helpful book I have found pastorally with a biblically true trajectory about these doctrines of grace. Richard Phillips what's so great about the doctrines of grace. And this dear lady just did what I have urged you to do from the get-go, be like the Bereans. In Acts 17, she studied the scriptures to see that they were true. Quite frankly, if Jan without her here, my wife, when she first came to Orlando of Grace and went to discover OGC, she would have said the same. This is all new to me. And she had, well, she tell you, she took the course a couple of times because she wanted to be sure that she was in the right place when it came to these truths and her own understanding of them. So, um, I just want to reinforce my encouragement to you, if particularly these truths, this Korean, if I could use that term, is new, unfamiliar, you're I, Berean. I did try to restock this. You can this. I guess it's out of print. I could not find anybody that had it in stock. The Kindle version is available, if you do an iPad or a Kindle or whatever some of those other visual platforms are. But if you'll turn to page 74, I have a um, bibliography and suggested reading of some other resources that could potentially be helpful to you. Any questions about Perseverance of the Saints or this study in reform Theology? Yes, sir? Uh,
2: how do you receive the belief that you fellowship with them? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and more than welcome to become members here, as long as they understand that's where we're coming from, and it doesn't become a means of contention or disunity. That is important. I labor over this because I, I don't want anybody to be unfamiliar that. It, it, we have taken our stand here and have from the from the beginning. But I would like to think that my my particular and I would hope everybody here um at Orlando Race would have a similar you know, I, I think I remember the story correctly, you know, John Wesley and uh and uh George Whitfield uh two different sides of this Discussion, Whitfield, a great evangelist, open-air preacher, a Calvinist, this is his view. Wesley, more on the Armenian side, great gospel, mission-oriented man, champion of the faith. Somebody asked Whitfield if he would be, uh, if he would see, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this story correctly, uh, Wesley in heaven, and he said, absolutely not. John Wesley will be so much closer to the throne than I will be, that I will not. he will not be in my view and vision. So, this this is not a place where you where you draw a line and create a fence of fellowship, or that you would be unshareable at all. And it took me a while to get here because I had felt that some who advocated this kind of approach seemed a little hard-edged to me, um, and I just feel like uh, you know the the epistles say what 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 matters is faith working itself out in love. So want to be affirming, want to be gracious, want to be tenacious about what we feel like the scripture teaches because in my mind, here we have a, God is more fully glorified in this understanding of the scriptures, but um, we see through last darkly and one day the Lord will make everything patently clear. On this and a host of other things like baptism, which we're about to move to, that's a really good question, Andre. Thank you for bringing it up. Any others?
3: Well, it, it seems to me that, that that decision theology, that I guess is very popular, it, is uh, is something that I think about our lot. the pastor gets up and says so many decisions have been made, who well, made the decision? You know, it, 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 it's I just wonder. You know, that it's. Uh, Professional faith, really, is not always a professional. It's not always a true profession, and uh, and people find that out too. They might uh, make a profession and get baptized, and then you talk to them ten years later, and they said, "Well, the first one didn't count or didn't didn't cl- didn't click or something. They got rebaptized."
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so they
0: uh, There are, there are enum- and it's, it's a
3: It's a problem, I think, because they did have a good understanding and some sincerity, probably, but yeah. the Holy Spirit really, it, there was not no no conversion. So a decision with no conversion is, uh, is not complete.
0: Yeah. Well, I think of that, that parable where the Lord talks about, um, you know, in the same field, yeah. wheat and chaff is sown, exactly. and God is the one who ultimately. Sort that out. There are a number of pastoral and relational issues that are part of this kind of thing like you're talking about, making a decision, walking an aisle, Mm -hmm. giving an invitation. I try to faithfully challenge people to repent and believe in the gospel every time I preach uh, because I want them to wrestle with that, but I invite them to come and do some more work and study so that they're as well informed as they can be about that gospel before they make such a, and there is a decision to be made. There's a command, repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, Okay, I'm going to see, if I can't, in the time we have left, um, what we teach and practice about baptism actually does fall under doctrine, so it's appropriate, I think, to do it at this point. If you'll turn to tab three, page 75, let me introduce this by just reminding us what the word gospel means. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Simply, good news. Mm-hmm. Alright? If you want to just do the etymology of the word for gospel, good news, you know, tell you. There are two ways to think about it. Summary form, biblical form. Think of it as a helicopter that hovers over it at 100 feet, all right? Then there's a summary theological form, 35,000, big picture. I want you to grapple with both today. The gospel in summary, biblical form, is recorded for us in First Corinthians 15 1 4. Would somebody read those first, please?
3: Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are really <coughs> saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures.
0: I hear Paul is very helpful to us. I deliver to you of first importance this gospel which we believe and which we stand. And it consists of various specifics in verses 3 and 4. What's the first?
3: Hold fast.
0: When he talks about what Christ did, however, We have to hold fast to that gospel. What are the biblical particulars? Christ died. Christ died, right. Now it's right, right. And then Christ was buried Buried. according to the scriptures. And then Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel in summary biblical helicopters view form. Christ died, buried, and raised. Now we have the gospel in summary theological form. I've taken this from Mark Gever and Paul Alexander's The Delivered Church. I think this is a really excellent summary of the gospel theologically, thirty-five thousand feet. This gospel then is that God is our holy creator and righteous judge. He created us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. This is point one, creation. Right? But we have all sinned, both in Adam as our representative head and in our own individual actions. We therefore deserve death, spiritual separation from God in hell, and we are in fact already spiritually stillborn help us in our sins and in need of God to impart spiritual life to us. Given our desperate condition, what follows is why the gospel is supremely good news. So, creation, big picture, summary, theological form. Two, fall, right? This is Genesis 1 and 2. Fall is Genesis 3. Fall of our federal head, Adam, and sin. How? The third part of this glorious gospel. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to die the death that we deserved. And he raised him up for our justification, proving that (coughs) he was God's son. If we would have Christ's perfect righteousness credited to us, and the penalty for our sins accounted to him. We must repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Salvation, Christ's work, is obedience to the law, perfect keeping of the law, which Adam failed to do, and his substitutionary atonement, purchasing forgiveness from sins. The only thing lacking here It's the fourth and final part of the big picture new heavens and earth. Romans 8, all creation groans, awaiting the consummation. When we have communion later this morning, we will take the bread and the cup, remembering what Jesus has done, but with a view as well to what he will do when he brings a consummation of the ages. And the new heavens and new earth are ushered in. This is the gospel in big picture. This is in uh, <coughs> specific creation, fall, salvation, new heaven, and new earth. Christ died, was buried, and rose. Really, these are the subpoints of this right here. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances which have been explicitly and sovereignly instituted by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver who is appointed that they are to be continued in his church to the end of the world. I'm gonna just talk with you today about baptism, all right, not the Lord's Supper. If you have questions about that, I'd be happy to try and help you with that. Baptism is necessary for the believer in Jesus Christ not as a means of salvation, but as an act of obedience. Is your light as an act of obedience to the Lord's command? Let's so read Matthew 28, 19 to 24.
3: Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and
0: behold I'm with you always to the end of the age there's only one verb in the original language in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, particularly verse 19 and 20 make disciples I know the word go sounds like a verb it is a participle if we were to diagram this you, plural, make disciples of all nations, ethnic. How? Three participles. Going, baptizing, participles are, remember, English, I-N-G words, right? Mm-hmm. I was an English freak, not everybody is, but I wasn't in line when they gave out math ability, so mm-hmm. I had to lay somewhere, okay? Baptizing, all present tense participles do this, and teaching all that I have commanded you. Here's how we make disciples in our going, where we live, work, and play, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptizing in this trine and teaching them to observe all that I have committed, which is part of what we're doing here today, I trust. And then Acts 2, 38-39. but someone read those first, please? Bottom of page 75.
3: And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself.
0: All right. Baptism is necessary. It is a command. But it does not merit salvation, right? We learned in the true up after them in our study of salvation for by grace you have been saved through faith and not that of yourself. It is the free gift of God and not a result of lest Any man should what? Boast. Your baptism doesn't save you. Your going to church doesn't save you. Your giving doesn't save you. Your works don't save you. Baptism, top of page 76, symbolizes, here's what we teach. Doesn't believe this is what the scripture says, symbolizes primarily the believer's union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It further points to our cleansing from sin and our incorporation into the body of Christ. Baptism in simplicity for us is an outward act showing an inward reality. It is an acting out of the gospel, if you will, that you believe in your heart, taking into account your behavior as wanting to be conformed to that gospel. Romans 6, 3 to 5 would be a very significant passage. Could I have a reader, please? We
2: know that all
3: of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized in his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his.
0: Now you already know from previous sessions, those who have been with me for a while, and I'm in there that I am not an artist for the son of one. Um, but here's what we understand when we say that baptism, and this is carefully chosen a language symbolizes primarily the believer's union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. When you are in the waters of baptism, right, you are making a public declaration that you belong to Jesus and that his death, burial, and resurrection is what saves you and is your hope of eternal life. And so when you are lowered into the water, it's symbolic of your being, having died with Christ by faith, when you're under the water, it is symbolic of your being buried with Him. And when you are brought up out of the water after a moment, it is symbolic of your resurrection with Christ. So obviously, I'm tipping my hand that we practice baptism by immersion because of the vivid imagery. Baptism as a means of grace, bottom of page 76, is a required public and personal proclamation. and personal proclamation of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Just as the Lord's table, another means of grace, is a sermon, if I could put it that way, a sermon without words, so true our baptism is a sermon without words. The Holy Spirit uses our baptism to preach to our own souls that we've been buried with Christ. Our sins have been paid for and washed away, and we have been raised to new life with Christ. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit also uses our baptism to preach to continuous life in Jesus Christ to those who witness our baptism. The baptistry, by the way, at our land of grace is cheerfully hidden secret, but there is one. On the platform, there's a riser in the center, and underneath that is a baptismal pool. Mm. So we just... We used to have drums up there when our drummer moved on to help her son play at the church um, among the Hispanic community. And so it's, I used to be able to say, it's right under the drums, well, there aren't any drums to point you to now, but if you, if you go in there and you look at the stage, back behind the pulpit, um, there's a set of risers across the middle, and those come off, and there's a full pool underneath there. The, most churches have a baptismal that's elevated. Maybe you've been in some, or you, you know, well, we do it, we do it a little different. Um, when I go in the pool, my, I'm, I'm, you can see me from about my chest up and the person who comes in the pool, but we put it all on video as well and had to do audio, and it, it's, it's worked out really well. There's much more cost-effective than building it into the side of the building elevated. All right, First Peter 3, 21 to 22. May I have a reader, Top of page 77.
1: Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him.
0: William Brunan writes It's easy for Christians to lose sight of the significance and beauty of baptism and disregard the tremendous blessing that accompanies this ceremony. The amazing truths of passing through the waters of judgment safely, which is what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 3, of dying and rising with Christ and having our sins washed away are truths of a momentous and eternal proportion and ought to be an occasion for giving great glory and praise to God. If churches would teach these truths more clearly, baptisms would be the occasion of much more blessing in the church. I agree with that. Frankly, in some parts of evangelicalism, now baptism is somewhat ignored or not nearly as important as, I think, Bruno is pointing out in the scriptures, hold it to be. Here is an important thing that we teach and practice. Only those who can give a credible profession of faith, a credible profession of faith, should be baptized. This view is often called believer's baptism or credo. Credo meaning faith, the creed you ascribe to, baptism. Since it requires that a person give reasonable evidence, reasonable evidence of believing in Christ, Since baptism is a symbol of the beginning of the Christian life, it should only be administered to those who have, in fact, begun the Christian life. And there are a series of verses here uh, that all, and the preponderance of the evidence in the New Testament, is that those who were baptized did so on the basis that they had received the Word and had given a credible profession of faith. When you say you are part of the Reformed Baptist church, in Covenant, Mountain, uh, Tennessee. Covenant Mountain Tennessee, right right, or in Long Island, then you're acknowledging with the Baptist part, among other things, that that credible profession of faith you must first have been born again and be able to articulate that gospel that I unloaded on you at the beginning of this discussion in order to be able to reasonably enter the baptismal waters and to receive um, that means of grace and all that it symbolizes. (coughs) Household baptism, page 78, as mentioned in various texts above, indicate nothing decisively in our minds about the debate over infant baptism. So here is a way, right, that we, there's a divide here between um, reformed, committed, theological, biblical, the glory of God and salvation types. In the, for example, the Presbyterian world, they're going to invoke texts like household baptisms and they will baptize their babies as a sign of them being a part of the church and wait for them to evidence later in life a profession of faith that demonstrates that they're covenant keepers and not covenant breakers. We do not teach that here. We do not practice that here. You must be able to give a credible evidence of faith. We do dedicate babies. We pray over them and their families, but we will only baptize those who can make a credible profession of faith and that we have catechized about baptism and what it stands for. As a quote here by um, Paul Jewett that I think is helpful with the fact that, we, that neither side can claim any important substantive truth from household baptisms for their argument. Top of page 79, given the symbolic meaning of the ordinance, we've talked about that, dead with Christ, buried with him, raised again. Specifics of the gospel narratives describing the ordinance and the nature of the Greek word itself baptism is most duly administered through the mode of immersion to form. be immerse, don't pour, don't sprinkle, be baptized by immersion. John Calvin in the Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 16, says it is evident that the term baptized means to immerse. And that this was the form used by the primitive church. Now, here's a really important point as we close. I'm sorry I'm keeping you a little long. I apologize that it's so warm in here. We're usually freezing, right? So, something's going on with the AC. Welcome to June in Florida. While at Orlando Race, we teach and practice only believers' baptism. Hear that. That's the only thing we've ever done. Teach and practice. I tell people who. Take the opposite view. They do not need to be re baptized. I say this in love. They need to be baptized. They are appealing to an infant baptism in a Presbyterian or Reformed church. Tell them you don't need to be re baptized. You need to be baptized for the first time as a, a believer with a credible profession of faith. Uh, they roll their eyes and happily continue on with their particular church, and that's okay. Now, nothing I'm ever going to teach, preach, or write. It's going to settle this argument. I plan to report to room 201 and have heaven what I meant about baptism. And the lord will say, well done, or well, you missed that one. I'm pretty sure I'm on the right track here, but lots of other people who are much smarter and um, more brilliant than I take a very different view. We therefore hold this view charitably and a conciliatory matter that is not always the case in other Reformed Baptist churches. So the best way I can uh, talk about this is to read what we have in our bylaws, which are in your document section of this book, if you want some really exciting reading. As our confession states, we teach and practice believers' baptism by immersion. However, we realize that among some Reformed traditions, the meaning and mode of baptism is controversial. We flatly deny the aberrant views of baptismal regeneration. That's what's taught across the street. You baptize your baby, certain to be going to heaven. That's baptismal regeneration. We deny that as aberrant, unbiblical, heretical in light of what we've already talked about. We would humbly encourage anyone with a different view of baptism to investigate the scriptural evidence for believers' baptism. Having made this statement, we acknowledge that many Bible-believing Christians show every evidence of saving race in their lives. They are convinced that infant baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace that can be validly inferred from Scripture. For them, it is a matter of conscience, even as believers' baptism is for us. We would warn anyone of us refusing to be immersed as a believer due to ignorance or pride. If, however, it is a matter of conviction, we will not ask them to violate their conscience in order to be received as members with full privileges. We will commit ourselves to unity in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and allow each person to be fully convinced in his or her own mind. Those who do not hold the believer's baptism will not be permitted to vote on any amendments bearing on that issue. How many of you have met Chuck Mitchell yet here in Orlando, right? Okay. He is one of our elders. She's the moderator of the board. She is dead wrong on baptism. She has taught and and practiced as a part of his household, Pato Baptism. All his years. And yet God has brought him to our land of race. And we are happy to have him. I could not disagree more with where he's landed on that. She and a handful of other covenant members in our land of race believe the same thing. They'll never see a child baptized here at Orlando Grace in light of what our documents teach and practice. However, because in their minds, this is what they believe the scripture teaches, and they can present the view reasonably well, we don't make that a dividing line of our fellowship, and uniquely so, even in leadership, with a guy like Chuck who knows that's not an area he can go in order to try to campaign for a change or for any disunity or division here. Some days I would like to be one or the other. It would be easier. But in truth, I treasure that unique perspective. For some, it is a deal breaker. I've had people who have been up in or discovered OGC till this point, they hear that and they decide, that can't, that doesn't work for me. I want you to know if that's where you fall, I love you. I'm I'm happy to try to help you find some other place, but it is important for you to know that that's where we land. If you'd like to talk further about it, I would be happy to do so. But again, we only teach and practice Believer's Baptism at a land of grace. I'm sorry that I had to kind of hurry through that. I promise you, we'll come back to it. And I'll give you an opportunity to ask some questions and talk further about it. But I wanted to at least get to this point today. So forgive me that I haven't allowed time for us to unpack, but we will do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and that though we are desperate sinners, part of the fall of Adam's race, you have given us your son, and a new heavens and a new earth await. We thank you for keeping us from stumbling. Pray now as we head into corporate worship, bless our time. Be glorified as we enter into your presence and celebrate who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.